lovely to see you. I hope you appreciated having a royal welcome as you walked in the building. Um, apologies to those of you who you were made, just, some said it was a bit freaky. Some people said it made them jump. Um, I don't know, hands up if you watched the coronation yesterday. Okay. Okay, I want to read you a message from my mum. So I sent her a message yesterday and I said, watching the coronation, question mark. Quite brief, isn't it? She replies this, no way. And I'm certainly not going to swear allegiance, mum. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, um, okay. She has some fairly strong views about these matters, my mother. I kind of thought she'd do that, but I, thought I, I just thought I'd wind her up, really. But there you go. And it, and it works. So we are journeying through the book of Jonah. It's a quick journey because it's only four chapters. And we are thinking about what it means to have a vision that is for the city. I think we've got some... Uh, oh, there you go. That's, uh, that's, there it is. There's Sheffield. And... This vision really, I guess, is, is nothing new, folks. It's, it's been something the Lord's been doing for thousands of years, and we see that notably in, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. And what happens is God, take, um, God calls his people to, to live countercultural, sacrificial lives. The, people, um, the Jewish people are taken against their will from Jerusalem to Babylon. Babylon is about 400 or so miles to the, to the east. And the idea was that Nebuchadnezzar would take the, the middle classes, he'd take the kind of culture makers out of Jerusalem. And if he could assimilate them into Babylonian culture, they would lose their beliefs. That was the plan. And what happens is, is God, God takes, takes them that people. And as they find themselves in Babylon, uh, they're living on the very edge of Babylon, and they think, well, we're only going to be, somebody, somebody gives them prophecies, well, you'll only be there two years. So they think, all right, we're no, no point unpacking, really, isn't it? You know, it's like when you go on holiday, whether, I don't know whether you're one of those people that you arrive, and even if you're there for one night, you get your suitcase out, everything's neatly folded, and you put it in the wardrobe. Hands up if you do that. Yeah, yeah, okay. Hands up if you're like me, you just leave it and you just grab it when you need it. Hey, yeah, amen. I just don't see the point, right? So, you know, there's a kind of mentality, isn't there, thinking, well, we're not staying, so why bother unpacking? It's like if you live in housing and you know you're going to be there for a few months, you're like, why? I just can't, yeah, just don't bother. And that's how they're living. And partly they're living like that because they can't stand Babylon, they hate it. I mean, not only have the Babylonians taken them against their will from their home, but they just hate everything about it. They don't like the way they live. They don't like their culture. They don't like their food. They don't like their language. They don't like the way they... They just don't like it. So, they, so there's two options. One is that they assimilate, or the other is they withdraw. You never, ever connect. And then in Jeremiah 29, there is a prophetic word, and the word is this. Plant yourself in the city. Plant yourself. Yeah, but you're only here for two years. No, you're here for 70. It's bad news. Yeah, but we don't like it. Plant yourself. 
And not only plant yourself there, but, but why, don't, why don't you pray for it? Pray for it. Are you nuts? We hate these people. Pray for it. Yeah, but it's not our city. Yeah, but you're there for such a time as this from somewhere else. And seek its peace. And its, are you joking? The very epicenter of everything God hates, that we are to love it and to seek its peace and seek its prosperity because God loves cities. Cities are the epicenter of culture. It's where we get music and arts and education and construction and building and all kinds of stuff. It's where humans interact. It's often places of really good and places of real bad. But yet it's where God, people are called to be in every strata of society. We have some people who've just been elected to public office. Hey, Jesus help her, amen. <laughs> That's what we're called to do. We've got people who are governors in schools or people working in every strata of our city. And the calling is to love it into life, to seek its peace and prosperity, to pray for it. To love it, to plant a garden, to to make home, even if it's not where you want to be, to make home. And that is the heart cry of the people of God when they find themselves in the place they don't want to be. Because the temptation is to shut up shop. The temptation is to wait for it to blow away. And the call of God is to stay and to love the city. And our hearts as a church in this next season is to be a a church that is for the city in a variety of different ways. Because that calling is costly, both in terms of our wallets. Don't think I've forgotten about giving or money. I know. No, 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 we'll come back. We'll come to that, honestly. On the way out, if you want a selfie with the king, I'm joking, I'm joking. But it's costly in here, like sending people out. It's costly. Saying goodbye to friends, people we sat next to for years and years, and, and now they've gone somewhere else. And often they're having a great time. Often it's the ones left behind are like, what do we do now? It's a costly call. But it's the right call. And so the question today is, how do we, how do we navigate that? How do we navigate that? How do we, how do we love a place? How do we love a people that are nothing like us? I want to ask you a question. Who, who here is on like a family WhatsApp group? Okay. Let's see if this works. So one of the interesting, Clarissa is one of four. Okay. And each of Clarissa's siblings quite different from each other. Would you concur? She's saying yes. And they've all married people who are very different. Okay. <laughs> and so they've all, they've had kids and so each of the families are like really different. Okay. Is anyone tracking? You've got this kind of dynamic when you meet up, which is a bit different, sometimes can be a little bit awkward. Yeah? No? Okay. If you don't know what it's like, let me explain to you what it's like. Okay. One of the ways it comes out is, is 
because a lot of Clarissa's family, they live in different parts of the country. Now, I grew up in working-class West Midlands. Everyone lived close to each other. You didn't need to put in dates in the diary and you see each other. You just saw them every Saturday without fail in the same place, same time, same location. We, that was it. That was life. But it, I've discovered in the middle-class ways, you've got to get your diary out. You've got a diary in some time because everyone's just so busy. So, so we, everyone said, right, okay, we're going to go here. Can we go here? Ah, oh, yes, but Little Tarquin, that's not real name, but it sounds good for... <laughs> Tarquin needs to run barefoot through the forests at least three times a day to be at one with nature. And then we need to eat nettle soup because we are eco. Praise the Lord for eco, it's all good. So then me, on the WhatsApp, who thinks it's funny, sends like, somebody might say, well, where should we eat? And I'll send a gif of McDonald's or something. Doesn't go down well. Because they want to bring their homemade sourdough bread, you know what I mean? To eat with the homemade nettle soup, you know what I'm saying? Mildly awkward. And then you don't get into politics, and you certainly don't get into church. Because we've got a range of views on church. We've got the more conservative over here, to different people over here. So there are certain topics one tries to navigate. You know, it's just a bit awkward. And it, I, I don't know what it is, but the WhatsApp group is where it comes alive. You know? You know what I'm saying? Like there's somebody who's always blunt and just think, read the room. And there's always that person who, who's on the group but never responds. They're like a ghost. But you see their name. And then when you meet together, it's like, how do you navigate? Like, how do you navigate these dynamics? It's like, if they're watching this, I'm dead, honestly. But they're not going to say on the WhatsApp group, it's just going to be silence. But it is, so how do you navigate? I mean, sometimes family dynamics are hard enough as it is, let alone how do we connect with anybody who's actually different to us? Because one of the realities of the biblical narrative is in the, in the beginning, in Genesis, when we're separated from God, we're separated from each other. So it inevitably means relationships that those that we're closest to are a bit of a challenge. What does it look like to connect with people who are totally and utterly different to us? And I want us to dive into to the book of Jonah. I want, I'm going to read, I'm going to do it in two halves. I'm going to read through chapter three. It's not, it's not very long. I'm going to share a thought on it. I'm going to dive through chapter four, share a thought, and then we're going to finish. So here's, here's chapter three. So the context is... Here is a man called Jonah, and he's called to a city called Nineveh. Nineveh is mostly modern-day Iraq. Jonah is, is a, a Jew, he's a prophet, and he's been called by God to go to Nineveh, and he hates Nineveh. That's a problem, because he hates it. And the reason he hates Nineveh is the Assyrians are vile, violent grotesquely brutal people. And he's partly thinking, I don't want to go there because I don't want to lose my life. You can see his logic. It does make sense. And so the story goes, he does a runner. He thinks, I'm going to go to Spain. He's on the boat to Spain. Storms turn up. And he's going, the reason the storms have turned up is because I've been disobedient. Throw me over the side. He's thrown over the side. He lands in the belly of a fish. Beautifully, Luke spoke about that last week. It's on YouTube. If you didn't listen to it, you must check it out. And in the belly of the fish, something incredible happens. Jonah discovers something of the profound, beautiful, powerful grace of God. He is a very strong character. He's somebody who's known for his nationalist views. He's probably fairly self-sufficient. He's self-righteous. 
Um, he, he's, he, he thinks he knows more than God. And then as he is in the belly of the fish, and Luke beautifully described that to us, and really just an amazing talk. In that moment, he, it's, he comes to the end of himself. Just because we go through hard times doesn't necessarily mean there will be a heart posture response. That is a choice that often we have to, to surrender to God. In that moment, he's like, God, I cannot do this. This situation is terrible. This situation is beyond my control. We live in such a technologically advanced age. We can fix anything. Well, I remember Chris and I lived in Cambridge. I remember she spotted in the back of a bus. It says, Cambridge will beat cancer. It's like, Wow. It's a sense in which humanity can overcome everything. And yet Jonah finds himself in a situation which is just impossible. And in there you see this beautiful prayer, this beautiful posture of God, it is for you. Everything I do is for you. I'm going to pray to you, cry out to you. And then it just says that he just gets spat out. <laughs> Bizarre. And then he makes his way over to Nineveh. And this is what it says. Then the word of the Lord, Jonah chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh. This is the call of God on his life. And proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming. Listen to this. This is pretty short and sweet. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Job done. The Ninevites, listen to this, verse 5. The Ninevites believe God. Which is pretty remarkable. And we'll circle back, that to, back to that in a moment. A fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God might yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways... He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he'd threatened. There is something remarkable about this. Here is, here is Jonah, the, the reluctant prophet, the, 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 he doesn't want to go, and yet somehow God gets hold of his heart in, in a really terrible, terrible personal situation. He's kind of, his personal breaking becomes his public breakthrough. That's often the way in Scripture, this kind of, this, this deeply personal, profoundly 
painful encounter with God in the belly of the fish becomes the public proclamation, the platform that God uses. And the book of Jonah is interesting, only four chapters, but verse what, chapters one and two, three or four mirror each other. So in the same way in verse 1 where Jonah's on the boat doing a runner and the, 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 he took, begins to talk to the sailors about God, there is an openness to God. So here's the thing. When God calls, in, God calls God's man at God's time in God's place with God's power, God's anointing, God moves. So what happens is that, is that, that, that Jonah, through, through this very simple message, in God's timing and being obedient to what God wants, literally God shakes a city. It's like he is open to God, and yet God moves him in the most profound way. So it says it takes a couple of days. Nineveh's a relatively small city by modern standards. Ancient cities could be... Uh, could be a thousand people, providing that they had a wall around them, that made them a city. So it's, it's, a, it's a big city, nowhere near as big as this kind of cities that we, that we would have today. But it takes him so long because people respond to what it is he's gonna, he says. Now, one of the reasons he's done a runner from Nineveh is he thinks they're going to kill him. But do you know what? It's the exact reverse. They can't get enough of him. Like they're so, they listen to him and they're like, oh my goodness. No way. Do you know, and the reason that they're so open is because there have been a number of factors. Uh, Nineveh is in economic decline. There's particular social dysfunction. There's been some other things that are happening that they're thinking, I'm not sure all is going well for us right now. So when he turns up in this moment, it is like, boom, they are ready, they are hungry, and then it is like, da 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 da. It's like everything aligns, all the ducks are in a row, boom. So it takes Jonah ages to get round because far from killing, they want to know what it is he's got to say. And he's, 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 his message is pretty blunt. 40 more days and then it will be overthrown. So how do they respond? They, procl- they, they proclaim a fast. There, there's a sense in which, oh my goodness, there's a reality that the, that the reality of their life. There is, there is, a, there is like, it, when, we talk, we, when we talk about awakenings and revivals, we have this very, very kind of romantic view of it, but it is like a mirror is put in front of your face. You know, is that really me? Oh my goodness. And there's two ways we can respond. One is to be defensive. One is to kind of come down before God and say, God, no. And that's what begins to happen. They begin to proclaim a fast and they begin to put on sackcloth, which is the sign in the ancient world of repentance of saying, oh, God, we, we want you. We don't want to live like this. We can see the... The way in which we're living, it's just not going anywhere for us. And there's just this amazing move of God. I've got to get up now. Oh, that's it. Come on. Yeah, we're still there. It's all good. There's this like amazing move of God in this moment from just this man at this time. And it says that from the greatest to the least, when Jonah's warning reached the king, oh, you know, that could be problematic to say the least it says this and if you watch the coronation unlike my if you like my mom god bless you but if you did it says this he rose from his throne he took off his royal robes we saw this yesterday 
That be, I found it profoundly moving when King Charles' robes are taken off him. He's just before God in his kind of nightgown almost. It's just like there's him, the archbishop, and it, it's this moment of when it's all stripped away. It's just you and your maker. And there is this beautiful moment where, where the king covers himself with, takes off everything that symbolizes power. And he takes it off and he aligns himself with all of his subjects, all of his people that he's leading. And he says, I am like you. I need God. Puts the sackcloth. In fact, they put it on the animals as well, and, which seems really bizarre to me. And the king sat in the dust. It's this image of, of, of the inversion of power on encountering the, the warning and, and the wrath and the holiness and the power of God. It is exactly what God had intended. The king says, don't let people or animals or herds or flocks or anything. There's this major moment where a whole city, a move of God's spirit, that'd be amazing for such a time as this, And it says this, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he threatened. You see, what we see in Jonah chapter 1 is that the pagans, quotes unquote, Gentiles, are far more open to God than the people of God. So if you look through Old Testament history, when prophets turn up, they don't go down very well. But for these guys, it's like if it's, a, it's linking like to the prodigal son. There's a sense in which, yeah, we know we're screwed. We know. We, we know we need a saviour. And it's this profoundly beautiful, moving picture of grace. That here is a city that is known for its violence and its destruction and its death. And it's, in that moment, begins to change. It is the start of social reform. If you see that some of the revivals and moves of the spirit of the old, there's often significant societal change. The evangelical revival that linked into Methodism, there was a change in um, the, the way that alcoholism had a grip on our nation. There's particular times when society feels so sick that it can, but only by a move of God. And that's what happens here. And then we jump into chapter, chapter 4, and it says this. Um, but, but, and this is amazing. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. How can this be? I mean, he's got a YouTube career sorted right there. He's got a book deal. He's got a mega church in America. This guy is made. That's a little cynicism about the Corinthian industry, just coming out right there. Okay, I mean, he could be the talk of the green room forever. But he's angry. See, pray to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew. I, he said this, past tense. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, 
for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at the place east of the city there. He had made a shelter. He sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease the discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head. Speaking from experience, that's never good. So that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plants? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And here's the punchline. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Often we find, as, as, as we walk with the Lord, we often find there are particular things in our own life that God puts his finger on. And then sometimes we think we encounter a situation and we think, Flip, do you know, I thought I'd dealt with all that. Ever happened? You think, Flip me. I thought I'd dealt with all that. And here's Jonah who, 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 who when, when facing the sailors, it really is just is indifferent to their plight. In fact, the king of Nineveh has more compassion for his people than Jonah. Actually, Jonah's message is, you're going to burn. His, his heart is a heart of compassion. And yet by the time we get to Jonah, he sees the grace of God move and he is incredibly angry because Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites. He's still got some residual racism. He's still got some residual frustrations. They, the Assyrians have treated the Israelites so badly, he just can't seem to get over the fact that God's grace is big enough to reach them. And it's a major problem for him. And there are two things there. The one thing is this. As we go through life, as soon as we think we've got that one particular thing sorted, we can walk upon our own and we don't need the Lord. Often God keeps us in a place of vulnerability because that vulnerability kills any sense of self-sufficiency. That happened, If you spoke to me six weeks ago, I'd have said to you, I'm, I'm very comfortable speaking about vulnerability. I'm comfortable embracing vulnerability. Now, when I was waiting to see a GP, when I'd been signed off, 
And they said, what do you do for a living? And I felt really ashamed because I thought, I shouldn't be like this. I thought, actually, am I really that vulnerable? Or am I just good at talking about it? Because there's a difference. It's much easier talking about it than embracing it, folks. And I wonder for Jonah if there's this sense of he's seen the miraculous move of God. And then actually what comes out is unresolved stuff. That God has, has met him in the belly of fish, that, that has dealt with some self-sufficiency, but it's still some residual stuff, self-righteousness right there. And it's like God says, okay, we gotta, we're going to root this out right now. And the second thing is this, and this, this happens to all of us, like I am great at talking about grace when it affects me. I really love it. Made in the image of God, hallelujah. Oh, I love it. Thank you, Jesus. I'm a, I am a child of God. I'm no longer... Yes. What about the people I don't like? No, that's a problem. I'm not so good at that. I'm a bit more with Jonah on that one. Really? Lord, them? Really? You're kidding me, Lord. <laughs> Jesus, do you... I know you've got this whole I see everything business down but I don't think you do, you know? Because I, I think if you really knew what they'd done, I mean, I heard it in confession, Lord. Were you, were you not there? You're not listening? What's going down? You're not hearing this. These guys, mad as a box of frogs, what are you doing? That part of the city? No? Well, it's like, really want them to join my small group? <laughs> but they're not like us, because we, you know, we're, we're friends. And we've got intimacy, so we don't want any new people coming in, spoiling the intimacy. So we'll say we're full. Keep back. We don't like their politics. We've seen them on social media, so we just won't put them in the WhatsApp group. Or we'll remove them without telling them. Because we don't really want them to join us, because they're a bit different to us. Maybe different class. They say class instead of class. Oh, let it out, Jesus. Or maybe they're different part of the city, different colour. They just interrupt our friendship groups, but we're missional to the people we like. Because we're all a bit like Jonah. I am. Jonah's good with mission, providing they're his people. I'm not that different. How about you? I've been to so many seminars. Over, and we actually, our church has done a lot of them about missional and missional communities, all of which is fantastic. I've learned techniques of sharing my testimony in 30 seconds. Let me tell you why. Boom. Uh, I have, we've done all that stuff for strategies and this and that. But do you know what? If you don't like people who aren't like you, you ain't going to love your neighbor. If we don't love him with the whole of our lives and give him everything, all our prejudice, all of the stuff that makes us vulnerable, all the stuff that we don't like, we're not going to love our neighbor. And so, so my ref um, actually, let's have the next slide, please, actually, if that's possible. Next one. This is why I don't do slides again. This is, this is, this is one I want to kind of land with this. 
is that if we neglect the great commandment, we hinder the great commission. So we're we're called by Jesus to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul. It's from Deuteronomy. It's what the the Jews would say, the Shema, twice a day. Hear, O Israel. I'd love to learn it to say in Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God. To give him the whole of our lives. For, for Jonah, it's to give him, give him all of the things that make him angry. It's to give God all of it. And that Jesus tells us the Great Commission is to go out into the world to make all disciples. It is the same Abrahamic call that Israel is to be a light to the nations. And in that moment, Jonah is so frustrated. He's so angry. He's like the older brother in the prodigal son. That he's forgotten who he is. The older brother in the prodigal son, his job was to go out and search the highways and the byways for the lost boy. Jesus is the true older brother who finds us as we are lost and welcomes us home. Jonah was called to give a message and include and embrace people who were far from him. And he couldn't do it because his heart was hard with anger. And that's why in this season, folks, as as we think about being a church that is for the city, we are mindful of the call of Jeremiah. You cannot, if you're in a workplace and your boss is an, it's a Greek word, you cannot do it unless Jesus gives you a soft heart for that person. It is impossible. But the Spirit of God can do it in you and through you in a place that's tough. You can shine in that context. You just need the grace of God to do it. In the same, in the same, same way that, that we are called to give away everything that God gives to us, our hearts become hard. It is perfectly normal, but our call is to bring our hearts into the presence for one and say, Lord, we love you. We give you everything. Give you my heart, my mind, and my soul, my internal world, all my fears, all my anxieties, all anxious thoughts, everything that I can't control. I give it to you, Lord Jesus. My heart is full of sin. I give it to you. And as we come before him and he melts and changes our hearts, our indifference is yielded to him. So when we see the city and its brokenness and the crime, we don't just, as if we're looking on Netflix, look at something else. God says, I want you to do something. And you say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And as we gather on a Wednesday... We don't really know what we're doing. There's not a lot of agenda. There really isn't. It's Luke who says two days before what you think we ought to do because he's very good at all that stuff. And we say, I trust the Lord, Luke. Don't worry about it. The Lord will provide. We come before him. We meet in his name, his church. We're his people. And that's it. That's the call. Until he releases us back to the city with a secure identity in who we are in him. See, Jonah, by the end, was more bothered about a plant. They say it was a castor oil plant. Got one in our garden. I'm going to try and trim it back. It just comes back more voracious. And he was more bothered about that castor oil plant going than 120,000 people in the city. I find that profoundly challenging. 
And what we do with that challenge is we either feel guilty, so I wish I, I wish I'd go back to Psalm 23. I feel guilty about it. Or we could see it as an invitation to the Lord saying, give me your heart. I know it's hard. I know it's broken. I know you've been let down by the church, by leaders. Give me your heart. Because I can give you a renewed heart. Because I've got stuff for you to do. And then when we do all those courses about how to share your testimony in two seconds, knock and zap somebody in the spirit, whatever it is, we go with soft hearts of love for the city of Sheffield. Let's pray.